Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. If you're looking for jewelry that makes an impact on your self-care routine and your style, Empowerography would love to offer you a discount code to one of our exclusive partners, Quartz and Canary Jewelry and Wellness Company. Please use code EMPOWER15 to receive 15% off upon checkout at www.quartzandcanary.com. Quartz and Canary is truly the place where spirituality meets style. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Erin Jones. She is an independent education and systems consultant, a public speaker, and also a three times TEDx speaker. How are you doing today, Erin? I am good. I'm good. Glad to be here. Excellent. Well, thank you for making and taking the time to be here. I know that you and I have been trying to connect and get this done for quite some time <laughs> now, and life has happened on mostly my end, which has prevented that, but we are here now and I am grateful for the opportunity to be able to sit down and speak with you. So thank you for being here. I appreciate you. Yeah. Glad to do it. So Erin, how long have you been working as an independent education and systems consultant? So I was a classroom teacher and then a state schools administrator and then a school district administrator for about 25 years. And then I ran for public office here in the state of Washington. I'm actually the first black woman in my state to run for any state office. And I lost that race in 2016 by one point. And everyone asked, well, what was, what's your plan? And I said, well, I don't play to lose. I play to win. (laughs) I'm, I'm actually, you can't see me on the podcast, but I'm a six foot tall former basketball player. I played basketball for 40 years. So I don't play to lose. I play to win. And (laughs) I didn't have an alternative plan. But what happened is I kind of fell into people started asking me, hey, you do racial equity training, you do assemblies at schools, could you come and do this one and then that one and about a month after I lost my election. I had so much work that my husband said, honey, I think you need to get a business license because we're going to need to pay taxes on this. And so I really fell into this work of supporting schools and higher education and thinking about race and equity and then doing some school assemblies. But now I really support lots of different institutions. So I talk about race and equity within all systems. So law firms business organizations, community foundations, education spaces, K-12, higher education. And I've been doing that about six years now. Wow. So I'd, I'd like to continue on that path. You mentioned how you were a candidate for state superintendent, first black woman to run for any state office in Washington. What an incredible achievement and a role model for young women and young black women. How did that feel for you I mean, it must have been an incredible feeling. It was. You know, one of the reasons I ran is because, especially in our state, there really aren't very many people who look like me doing work of education leadership. And even classroom teachers, there are not very many. And so I knew, having been a former classroom teacher and administrator, I knew that representation mattered. And I didn't want to be a politician, but I had so many people ask me to run for office that one of the reasons I ran was really to elevate the idea for our black and brown students that you could be a leader someday too. And so although I I ran because I absolutely believe in public education and I had been a leader in public education for about 15 years at that point, I also ran because I knew children were watching. I had students who had heard me speak in their schools for 10 years before that watching me run for office. And I knew it was important for them to see me stand tall with my big afro and brown skin. (laughs) I love Um, your hair, by the way, Erin. It is fucking (laughs) epic. I love it. It's so awesome. It is pretty epic. It is. It is is amazing. And just, sorry not to interrupt, but it just, I watched your, I watched your talk last night, your TEDx talk you did at the high school. And you, you talked about when you were a child, how you were teased and how you hated having that hair. You didn't like the way your hair looked. You just wanted your hair like every other kids. And what really stood out for me in that talk, Erin, is how you emphasize to these kids to be 
uniquely you. you. Mm-hmm. And I yep. fucking love that. I think that <laughs> yeah. was brilliant because these kids are so impressionable at the age where you were speaking to them that they need to hear that because of yes. all that goes on in the school systems, bullying and all the other yes. crap that happens. I That talk moved me so much and it hit home and it is so powerful. And I just love that you now stand there and you own that shit. Like your your Afro is fucking epic. I love it. I think it's beautiful (laughs) and phenomenal. And I love that you just own that shit now. And and it's hard as a kid to do that. It is. And you know, I'm also, so I've been six feet tall since I was um, in seventh grade. So since I was 12 years old. Yeah. So just imagine being six feet tall, five, 11 and a half, but I just say six feet because we round up, we round up. (laughs) Yeah. But imagine being the tallest kid in your class and having all of this hair. And at the time when I was in seventh grade and tall, I went to a school where I met my first two black students. So I had been the only black student in my school until that point. We happened in my seventh grade year to have two other black girls join our school just for a year. But imagine being one of the only two. So we ended up being three of us in our class in the whole school. There were only three of us. So I always felt like an outsider as a little girl. And I get to speak in a lot of spaces where there are just a few, whether it's just a few Latina girls or just a few Native students or just a few trans students. And my message, even though I talk about being Black, I think what is really powerful is that message of just doing you transcends the race. So students who hear me who are on the autism spectrum, or they're trans, or they're disabled of some kind. Just different. Not not the norm, as we say. (laughs) Yes, yes. They see me. And it's so funny when I finish an assembly those students find me and they always want to say thank you. And they always want to say they were inspired. And so I love that my message translates to so many different people. Absolutely. Well, I was incredibly inspired by that talk. It was just brilliant. And like I said, I just loved how you stressed and talked about how it's okay to be different and to embrace those differences. It's Mm, okay. mm -hmm. Don't try and be like someone else. Why do you want to be a carbon copy of someone else? No, you be you and put you out into the world. Yep. I love it. I absolutely love it. So inspiring, (laughs) Aaron, truly. Uh, Yeah, thank you. So I want to just step back for a minute and go back to your run for candidacy. Yeah. Knowing that you were that close in that race, would you ever or did have you, maybe you've already thought of this or have you thought about throwing your hat in the ring and trying again? Or is that that ship sailed? I am done. I am done. And it was really an ugly process. It was really, I don't regret having run at all. So I'm I'm so glad that I ran. And there were so many lessons that I learned. And politics in the United States is so gross that um, it's so dehumanizing that I have no desire to ever do it again. I'm not saying I would never run for office, but it would have to be the absolute perfect time and perfect place. Now that I know what I know, about what it requires. There's a piece of your soul that you have to give up to actually win. And I realized towards the end, there was a way I could win. I mean, I was 1% away and there was a way that I probably could have won, but I would have had to give up some of my integrity and I I just, it wasn't worth it. And and so when people ask if I want to run again, I, I really have no desire to. And what I know because I did so well is it opened doors for me to do things that I couldn't have imagined before. Right. And, you know, I had a student ask yesterday, if you could pick your favorite job or if you could do something else for a living, what would it be? And I said, I'm in that spot now. So <laughs> I have no desire to switch at this yeah. point and, and to go into politics. When you sit back and think about that, then what you just said about politics, you have to give up part of your soul and you probably could have won had you been willing to do this, this, or this. Isn't that kind of sad when you sit back and think about it? The mm-hmm. fact that people actually do that and they're okay with it and they don't have any, they don't feel any way about it. Like that to me just speaks volumes that what politics is just a load of, I don't even know. Like it's, 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 it's it's so crooked. It's horrific. I mean, are there good people who are in politics? There are, I know lots of people who are really great people in, and, and it's gross. The whole process is gross. And I think, especially, you know, for me, having grown up at the United Nations school, I got to see government and politics at an international level as a young child. And then to watch it, my husband has a master's degree in American government. And so we had this really intellectual understanding of politics, but walking through it and seeing what people are willing to pay 
and how people are willing to get paid and pay for favors and treat people, even people in the same party as dirt to get up and to get ahead. To me, it's the antithesis of what I try to teach as a teacher. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I have, I have tried to stay in touch with people who are running for office. I've tried to help especially women and women of color running for office and also push the system to do better. So from the outside, I've tried to stay as close to that as possible because I think if we all just give up, it will become worse than it already is. But it's hard. I have to think about how much time am I willing to invest in that because I don't think it's a healthy structure. I don't think it's a healthy process. And I think it needs to be transformed. I don't know who will be willing to do that, but I think if we're going to get really good people in in the system the whole thing has to be completely revamped, overhauled. Yeah. Do, so do you really yeah. believe that it's possible to do that? Is that possible? Do you think? I don't, I don't know at this point. I don't, yeah. I don't know that I have hope for that. And I think it's why I work with lots of government organizations and, and schools are part of government too. Right. I choose to work outside of the structure to work on those systems. And I feel like I have greater influence from outside the structure Yeah. than Within. I would have. Inside, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you mentioned your childhood. You went to school at at a United Nations school. So I want to great segue. I want to touch on your because I know you have quite the personal story. I've watched your talks, and so I know a bit of your backstory and your journey. It didn't influence or inspire your journey into education. It was actually quite the opposite from what I got from one of your talks. That the last thing you wanted to do was become a teacher again. Teach. It's education, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. <laughs> you wanted nothing to do with that in in terms yeah. of career. So, can you share a little bit about your personal journey with us? Yeah. So I was abandoned in a hospital as an infant. I'm a black woman born out of the body of a white woman. So I'm I'm biracial technically. My mother was a white woman. My father was a black man. Um, But back in 1971 in Minnesota, that was unacceptable. So I was left in a hospital sent to a children's orphanage where I was adopted by a white couple who were both teachers. And they realized quickly that where they lived in Minnesota was probably not the best place to raise children who look like me. And they also, unlike everyone in their families who has stayed in the same place pretty much forever, my parents wanted to see the world. And so they took teaching jobs at the American School of The Hague in the Netherlands. And I attended school there my entire childhood. And I got to be around very powerful people. The royal family came through our school all the time. So the Dutch royal family, the queen, queen mother, all came through our school. So I I was exposed to really powerful leaders. Um, A lot of the ambassadors to the United Nations would come visit our school. Their children went to my school. So like Israel, Palestine, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Brazil, Peru, Kenya. I had the opportunity to meet really powerful people as a child. And, And so when I thought about future aspirations professionally, I thought about being like that, like an ambassador or an international lawyer or something big, air quotes, big, (laughs) because I I didn't see my parents at the time as, as world changers. I thought, you know, they're just teachers, you know, they just show up at school and they teach children and And it wasn't until I came to the United States for university with the intention of going back to the Netherlands to work in the UN. It wasn't until I got to the U.S. and saw that children who look like me had not had the same level of education, were not exposed to powerful people, were not taught to believe they could do great things. It suddenly hit me really as an 18-year-old in Philadelphia. Oh my gosh, my parents have been changing the world every single day my whole life as teachers. And in fact, my parents have taught hundreds of children who have gone on to work in governments across the world. So they literally have changed the world because of the exposure they've had to the children of world changers who now are changing the world themselves. So it wasn't until, yeah, I was 18 or 19 years old that I realized how important the work was that my parents had been doing and realized that my whole life story had taken me into teaching. I just hadn't thought about it that way. Wow, that is incredible. I liked one story in particular you told about having lunch with John Denver and what an incredible thing for a nine-year-old. You were only nine years old and you're sitting there having lunch with these two people. I sang with Danny Kay that year too. I don't know if you know who Danny Kay is, but um, I've heard the name. After, 
Oh, superstar actor. Old, I mean, he's been gone for a long time, but that same year I, I got to sing with Danny Kaye on television with wow. my fourth grade class. <laughs> Incredible. I mean, the things you have seen and done in your life, yeah. just absolutely incredible and and the work you do now i mean wow so aaron how have these experiences helped shape the aaron you are today both personally and professionally do you think yeah so i i just told a room full of college presidents that you know one of the things i learned early as a girl being exposed to all these very powerful people is that man money and wealth and title and privilege did not have to determine whether i could be great or not i could choose to be great I watched all these very powerful people. I got to sing with John Denver as a little girl. And yeah, he was an amazing singer. Yeah. I got to be around royalty. They were born into the royal family. They didn't do anything special other than have a particular talent or have kind of where they were, the station they were born into. But I knew somehow as a little girl that if I worked really hard, I could also do great things. Greatness was not about position and power. It was about how a person chose to invest themselves. And so somehow I realized that early. I also got to be around famous people who were not always very happy. For example, Danny Kaye, who was a very famous actor, was not a happy person. So our whole fourth grade class got to be on television with him. And he was not happy. He was angry. He didn't want to be on the show. And so here was this man who was known worldwide for being a comedian, for being an actor, for being a singer. And he was just a real human. And that was actually a really powerful lesson for me to realize at nine that famous, rich people are not necessarily happy and thriving. Yeah. <laughs> and so I knew then I don't want to strive to be famous or wealthy. I'm going to strive to have impact. Yeah. I just told a group of students last week, a, a little girl, I was speaking in a middle school with 12 and 13 year olds. And I saw a little girl after I spoke and she said, I want to be famous like you. And I said, first of all, I'm not famous. I'm famous <laughs> to you because you just got to hear me in front of your school, but I'm not famous. But I, I said, I would suggest to you that you not seek out fame, yeah. that you seek out having impact. I want to encourage you to do work in the world that will change your world for the better. Make every room that you're in better for you having been there. Don't worry about having so many people follow you on social media or make a certain amount of money because those are not things that are fulfilling. Those are not measurable metrics. I mean, nope. we continue as a society to put these people on a pedestal. They're humans just like you and I. Mm-hmm. They just they are just more in the public eye and they, they make a bigger paycheck because of being in the public eye. But think of all the crap that they have to deal with yep. and put up with yep. every day. No thanks. Yep. Nope. <laughs> no nope. interest whatsoever. You're right. I would much rather have all the impact in the world with what I do yes. and the work I'm doing. Yes. Money doesn't mean shit. And I mean, right. yes, of course we right. need money to survive. It's part of life. We have to have it to live, but yeah. it's not the be yeah. all and end all. It really, exactly. in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't mean anything. Yes, no, absolutely. So I've had the opportunity to play basketball with NBA stars. I tried out for two WNBA teams. So I got to be around a lot of professional athletes as well. And yeah. crazy experience on a TV show once with a really famous fashion star. Okay. And I'll never forget this fashion star it's a dress-up show so they were going to do my hair and makeup and all this and because I'm black and her hairstylist was black she invited me back into her hairdressing room while she was getting her hair done and I'm not going to say her name because I don't want to out her but she's somebody that Americans know really well and I'll never forget we're sitting there getting our hair done and she says to me Erin do you know I was engaged to be married but I cut it off about two months ago because I realized he wants me for my money and my notoriety, not really for me. And she said, you know, people see me as this really famous icon. I have my own TV show, but I'm so alone. Yeah. I don't know why she told me this, but she said, Aaron, I am so alone. And we cried together. That's we cried together in her. And she's, she's probably worth over a million dollars. I mean, she's, she's really well-known in the TV industry. And it was such a great reminder to me that fame is not what we ought to be seeking. Money is not what we ought to be seeking. We ought to be seeking authentic relationship with people and doing work that really makes our world a better place. Absolutely. Impact equals currency to me. That's that's it right there. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So what would you say then is the most important or the biggest lesson or takeaway you've learned through your process to where you are now in life? So something that I, well, there are a couple of things, but one okay. thing that I say in every assembly that I do with students now, and I, I try to say it to adults too, because I think we need to hear it equally yep. is this. I am worthy because I am. I am worthy because I am. Not because I have a title or money or so many likes on a particular post, or I look a particular way, or can do a particular thing. I am worthy because I am. Because I exist, I am worthy. And I think that goes back to what you said about my hair. You know, when I was 40 years old, I realized, oh my gosh, I've been straightening my hair for someone else my whole life. I'm just going to do me. I'm just going to embrace that I'm six feet tall with really big hair, and (laughs) I love really big jewelry, and I'm also kind of a tomboy, I don't fit in boxes and that's okay. And I'm worthy. And I may not be like anyone else, but that's what makes me awesome. But guess what? You're not like anyone else either. And that's what makes you awesome. There you go. That individuality. I love that. And what you had said there, it reminds me, I just did an interview with a woman who was involved in news and politics and a black woman. And Mm -hmm. she was telling me how at one of the stations she worked at, she had shorter hair. And she was urged to wear wigs because they wanted yep. her to look a certain way. Yep. They wanted her to wear have long hair. And she did this for so long. And yep. then she just, she had a conversation with someone and the woman told her, said, what the hell are you doing? Like, yep. why are you doing this? And she actually cut off all her hair and they aired that segment. Wow. And, that. and that is fucking powerful. That's owning your yeah. authenticity. That's stepping into who you truly are. And I think that's absolutely horrible that anybody should be pressured into being or looking something else, something else like that is horrible. Yeah. We talk about teaching our children to be who they are yet. We're having adults do this. How we're talking out of both sides of our mouths here. It's crazy. Yep. You know, and it's why I have so much compassion for children. Right now in school spaces in the United States, children are meaner to each other than I've oh, ever yes. seen in my 31 years in school. But I would offer that guess what? Adults are mean. Yeah. And so how dare we how dare we judge children when children are just mimicking with greater immaturity. They are just mimicking what they see in their homes and on TV and on social media. And so we as the adults have to be the example. We have to lead by example. We've got to be better. And that's what I'm committed to. And so I make mistakes sometimes and I tell students, man, I screwed up there. Like Miss Erin just messed up there. And I try (laughs) to be vulnerable. And I try to to lead by example. I can't ask young people to do what I'm not willing to do. And I can't expect young people to somehow be better than we are collectively yeah. as adults. Well, where, like you said, where do you think these kids learn this behavior? It's a Absolutely. learned behavior. I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. I can remember one of my daughters was bullied. Well, both my daughters were bullied in elementary school and my youngest was bullied verbally and physically by a boy. And at that <laughs> time they were, they dealt with that. It was, it was quite a process. It went on for the year and my wife and I, I had had enough because there was supposed to be this zero tolerance for bullying in the school. Yeah. And of course it was not upheld. So my wife and I went in and we met with the principal and the principal started making excuses for this boy. Well, he oh, had, boy. he came from a bad home and it's not his fault and da, 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 da. And granted, sure. He's learned the behavior somewhere, but that does not give him any right to put hands on any child, yeah. especially a girl. We are yeah. taught, I don't know about everyone else, but I know when I was growing up as a young boy, I was, my parents always told, don't you ever lay hands on anyone, but especially not a girl. Boys don't yep. hit girls. That's not something that's done. And it was just excuse after excuse after excuse for this kid. And this just echoes this learned behavior shit. And it's right. not an excuse though. You cannot do no. it. No, no, no. It's nope. horrible. And you're right. <laughs> they, they are meaner and meaner, but it's learned somewhere. They're learning it, it at home absolutely, and yeah, through TV, absolutely. social media. So I'm curious then, how have things changed? You being an educator, how has the world evolved in that realm, in education? From the time you started your career to where you are today, has it changed for the better? Has it gotten progressively worse in terms of responsibilities, curriculum, all of those things? 
So, I, okay, that's a complicated question that I don't know that I could answer quickly, but okay. but I will say this. You know, people ask all the time, I'll, I'll focus just on race because I, okay. that's yeah. a lot of the work I do yeah. is around race and reconciliation. And so a lot of people in the United States will say to me, well, oh my gosh, the last two years have just been so horrible, so much worse than it was 10 years ago. And I say, no, no, actually that's not true. I can remember when I came to the United States and there was a sign in the college community that said, no coloreds or Jews allowed at the golf course. <laughs> Jesus. Right. And that was in 1989. So no, it's not worse today. Some people are just waking up to realize we yes. have social media now that shares what's happening. And so it's more apparent to certain people now what is happening. But I would say we're, we're not worse now than we were before. It's just we've ripped the Band-Aid off. I think also right. COVID exposed things that oh, yeah. we had not seen before. Partly because now we're all stuck on a computer. So we're watching social media and paying attention in different ways. But it also exposed what I knew to be true. And a lot of people already knew to be true about who had access to resources and who did, who was able to access computers and technology, who didn't, who was able to stay home with a computer and who had to go physically into work. Yeah. These are all things that a lot of us had already been screaming about. But once COVID hit, people couldn't not see it. Yeah. And so a lot of folks said, oh, it's so much worse now. No, it's not. You have to see it now. You yeah. didn't have to see it before. Yeah. And so I don't think we're worse. I also think that here in the United States, there are four things. And I, I can say this because I grew up somewhere else. There are four things that people have been trained to not talk about. So you're not supposed to talk about race. You're not supposed to talk about religion. You're not supposed to talk about politics and no talk about gender and mixed company. Right. And so we suck at it now because we've been told to not talk about it. And so people are unskilled. They're unskilled at talking about it. I don't think people are more racist or more misogynistic than they were before. I just think they're less skilled. And so part of the thing that gives me hope is that I'm being invited into space to give people skill. And I don't see myself as the expert, but I am an expert facilitator. And I love opportunities to go into space and help people have the hard conversations that I believe we need to have if there's any hope for unity. Absolutely. I mean, this is how problems start to get resolved is through conversation. We have to talk about it. Absolutely. We have to have those hard conversations. Those are necessary. And there's a, there's a civil way to do it. You don't yeah, have, absolutely. it doesn't have to get into a huge argument or debate or pointing fingers. He's wrong. She's wrong. Who just start with conversation. That's how everything starts. That's how we start working towards solutions. Absolutely. Yep. You're absolutely correct. And that's and, what I love to do. I love to help people <laughs> help them have the conversations that are necessary. And you're right. COVID has shone such a bright light onto so much crap that has been going on for decades. Yeah. People are starting to wake up. And I think this was as terrible as some of the things were that happened during that time in terms of financial loss, job loss, life loss, all of that stuff. Yes, that's all horrible. But I have to say, and I believe this in my heart of hearts, COVID was a gift. I really believe that it was a gift to the world. Truly. It was needed. It was necessary. Yes, I agree. Yep. And I don't even think we're anywhere near the end. The end. No. <laughs> and and that's not even that's not even the end of COVID, but just the awakening of people. Because nope, I, I, I feel like the world is sitting in this pressure cooker and the lid is going to blow off. And there's going to be so much more good that comes out of this whole thing. Truly believe that yep. with all of my heart. Yep. Nope. I, I absolutely agree. And I, you know, one of the things I've been telling education leaders is I think a year ago, we had such an incredible opportunity to really reimagine things in a significant way. And I think we missed that opportunity. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we can't do some really significant change. Right. And so I urge people in this moment to think about now that the dust is, has been shaken, it's yeah. almost like a rake has been raked over the dirt. We can either let it harden, which it will, it will, yeah, and yeah. we could just go back to normal, whatever normal was, yeah. or we can allow that soil, like till it again. Let's till yeah. it. Let's use this opportunity to really reimagine the flowers that we're going to plant there Yes, and allow some new things to grow roots. We need that. The world needs that. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. Yeah, so I agree. Since having worked in and around schools and education for such an extended period of time, what would you say are three of the biggest issues in our education or school systems that you've seen emerge in the last decade versus when you first got involved? Wow. In the last decade. So 
I don't know at what point, but I will say, you know, when I first came to the U.S. in 1989, it was really clear that if you were a black or brown or poor child, the expectation was you would get your high school diploma and just go work in the service industry, or maybe you would go to a technical college and learn a trade. And that was it. That was it. There was no expectation that you would go on to a four-year college or do anything quote unquote professional. And I saw that. I saw that evidence in who got placed in which classes, who was encouraged to apply to college, who was not. I saw that even in the way that I was treated by professors. There was an assumption that I would score a lot of points on the soccer fields or the basketball court, but not a lot of expectation around me as an academic person. And so, horrible. oh, it is horrible. And it drove me to where I am today. So it it causes me then to really shake up systems when I see systems still today driving particular groups of kids into particular classes, like basic level classes instead of higher level classes, right. driving particular students into certain professions instead of considering being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. And so I would say we're still navigating that and kind of disrupting the narratives about who belongs where. So that is still the thing that is true. But the other thing that, you know, I'm hoping we're coming back around to after COVID is I would love to see more hands-on work. I don't think students with COVID, I don't think students are willing to sit down for six hours and just be spoken at, be talked at for yes. six hours anymore. And so what I hope will happen, and I'm seeing this happen in quite a few spaces, is more hands-on, more opportunities for project learning, project-based learning, more using technology in creative ways instead of just typing a paper, but using your computer, using your laptop to do creative things like create videos or yeah. whatever. And so that is an opportunity that I see that there could be incredible benefit from really reimagining what does class look like. I also think what I'm really excited about, and you've alluded to this a bit with how you spoke about your daughters being bullied, but just with mental health, I think yeah. for the first time ever, we are finally talking broadly about the importance of social emotional learning and mental health. Yeah. And that school needs to be a place where students have access to that. Because Absolutely. even though we we knew as a parent, I knew this, as a teacher, I knew that we need mental health care for these students. We need to be talking about how students engage with one another around difference. I was really good at that as a teacher, naturally. Not every teacher was good at that. And there was so much focus on test scores and math, reading, yeah. writing, math, yeah. that we missed an opportunity to humanize students. Yeah. And so I am really excited about a trend I see in really centering the humanity of students and the adults who serve students. I love that you said all of that, all that you said. And I love that you brought this up because I've been thinking about and talking about this a lot lately with friends and people in my community. When I think about the education system here in Canada, I think it's broken. I think it's completely broken in terms of those things that you just spoke about. We are really just creating drones in, in our school yep. system. These kids, they're taught to memorize, regurgitate, yep. and that's it. What is that? That, that is Well, useful. that was the factory model. That yeah. was the factory yes. model, which, which, you know, they needed at a particular time and place, Sure, but we're not in the factory model. No. I mean, like this is, we're not sending children to work in factories anymore. We're no. sending them out. They need to know how to think. They need to be critical thinkers. They need yeah. to know how to engage with people around them. They need to understand their own learning styles and their own self-care. It's a different world that students Absolutely. need to engage in. So school should look different. Yes. We need to, as you said, more hands-on things. Like when I was going to school, we learned shop and metal shop and home ec and all bring those things back. Teach these kids about how to manage money, how to do banking, real life skills that they need to use their minds and not just yep. sit there, memorize and regurgitate. Teach them things that yep. are useful in the world. Yep. We're, we're sending yep. these kids out into the world as robots, as drones. And, you know, when my girls were growing up and in the school system, they, my, my youngest is now in her third, she's going into her fourth year university. And when they were going through school, the school system was not allowed to fail these children. They weren't allowed to fail. Yeah. Them. What the yep. hell is that? That boggles my mind. Yeah. So you are really essentially just pushing these kids through, keep pushing them through until they get to a point where they're completely screwed because they won't know how to handle anything. It, what, the first time they get failed at something, they're going to have a meltdown. They won't know how to deal with it. What the yeah, hell are we doing? 
Well, and, you know, that's part of the reason I worked at the state level, because so much of this is driven by national and state expectations, so, because that's what drives what happens in classrooms is what's right. expected at the state level. What is tested is taught. So the things that we say are important at the state level or at the national level are the things that when it comes down to the classroom level, people will do. Right. And so it's one of the reasons I speak at a lot of national conferences. I'm talking to national leaders and state level leaders because I know that they are driving policy. They're driving the message about what is important in schools. And if we can change how they are talking about it, it rolls its way back to teachers. If we just start what they teach in a classroom, they often can't move the needle significantly because they are expected in order to keep their jobs. They're expected right. to do a particular set of things. So conversation is the way to get things started, but we need to really move like this needs to change quicker. Right. And I know that things move yeah. at a snail's pace when it comes to all of this stuff, but I also yes, here in does. Canada, I've had conversations with one of my friends, all of his sisters, he has three sisters and his mom, they're all teachers. And so he has many conversations around the education system with them. And him and I got to talking and he said, Brad, listen, in certain areas here in Ontario, where I live, there are areas where there is predominant a certain race or whatever, and they move the needle towards what they want for their kids in the school yeah. system. And that's yeah. the way the school system adopts to yeah. even, and they don't want, and they don't want things like hands-on experience or shop and things like that. All they want yep. is the math, science, yep. those things. So how do we change that? Like, how is that even possible to go against the grain that way? Like, I have so I no think, idea where to begin. You know, I think you start, it's interesting that I'm here today with college and university presidents and board members, because I think you just have to start sowing seeds in every room that you're in, every mm -hmm. space that you're in. We just need to collectively continue to spread these words. And I think people, there are, enough, there are people who get it. So we have to start with some people who are willing to listen and build capacity in people to begin to really develop some ideas, practically, what could this look like? And the more people we can talk to who get it, I think here's the other thing is I talk to educators and parents, people are exhausted and they know it's not working, but I think they feel helpless. So right. it's why I stay on the road and stay encouraging people to keep pushing. And so I think if each of us were to push where we are and link arms and, and encourage people. So I have a gathering that I host every Monday night and it's of other educators who, and actually students now who believe as I do. And it's my reminder each week. Okay. Okay. We're doing the right work. You yeah. need to have a place to go back to of people that can encourage you and keep you on the journey. And that's why I tell leaders, you know, who is the circle around you? Who are the people around you that when things suck and it feels like you're, <laughs> you're pushing this big boulder uphill by yourself, you can be reminded that you're not alone and that this work is really critical. Surround ourselves with like-minded people. Your vibe will attract your tribe mm -hmm. and you continue to Absolutely. push through and do the work. Well, thank you for doing the work that you do and advocating because it, we need more people doing that worldwide. Like, I mean, I can only speak to Canada because this is where I live, but you can speak to the States and it just, we yeah. need a huge change and it's got to happen sooner rather than later. It really does yeah. because the system has been broken for so long. Yes. So yes, long. it has. Yes, so it has. So I do, I do get to speak internationally. That, that was the beauty of, of the pandemic is all yeah. these Zoom opportunities that I got yeah. to speak in England and I got to speak at a an international conference on mental health. And so we've got to take these opportunities to sow seeds wherever we are in the world. And imagine if we could get a movement going. Exactly. That's it, right? That's how change happens, right? So mm -hmm. kudos to you for the work you do, Aaron. I think it's beautiful and, and much needed. So, I mean, you have, this is a great segue into, you be, have been recognized and received accolades, multiple awards from your peers for the work you do. And what do these accolades mean to you on a personal level? I mean, it's got to be an incredible honor for you. And, and how does that feel? And knowing that you're, what you're doing is having such an incredible impact. You know, it's funny you would ask that question because I literally, one of the college presidents was on my way here to the room to do this podcast. Um, I passed a college president and I'm about to earn their highest leadership award. And it's still a surprise. So I can't say the name of the college out yeah. loud, but I was chosen over two former governors for our state. Wow. I mean, it just, <laughs> I, the day they <laughs> called me and said, we want to offer you this award and it's the inaugural award. So it's the first time they're giving the award and they chose me over this list of five really amazing, famous, accomplished people. I cried. I, I cried on the call. 
And no, they said, no. this is exactly why we want to give you this award <laughs> because you don't think you deserve it. And so I guess what I would say about the awards is, man, I don't want to be famous. I just want to have impact. <laughs> and I think the awards just remind me that I'm having impact yeah. because there are days when I feel like, man, is what I'm doing making any difference at all? Yeah. And so it just, it drives me to keep doing the work. I really don't seek to be famous. I don't, I don't want to have a fancy car or a big house. I don't yeah. want to be rich, but I do want to be part of making this world a better place. And I think the awards are this recognition that I'm at least heading in the right direction and that my work matters to people. I, I think that's beautiful. And that just speaks this right here, this question, your answer speaks volumes about who you are as a human being and it's beautiful and inspirational and incredible. So congratulations on that. That is huge and well-deserved. <laughs> Thank you. Just doing the work. I mean, I, yeah, again, I, every award that I've gotten is not something that I had to apply for. It was something that I was surprised with and <laughs> I, I just am it. doing the work. I'm just I doing the work. I yeah. love, I love how humble you are. I think it's so beautiful. Erin, what lights you up or inspires you the most about the work that you do? Young people. You know, adults are a struggle sometimes, but <laughs> having the opportunity to be around young people. So, you know, a lot of my work is consulting companies and businesses and schools and colleges, but we try to get in an encounter with young people at least once a week. So I'm either speaking in front of a whole school or speaking in a classroom or having coffee with a student that I'm mentoring. I teach online. I have two classes that I teach online and one of them is mostly students, middle school and high school age. And I think the thing that lights me up is just seeing their faces and watching them light up when they realize they are brilliant too. Watching them light up as they realize, as I share my story, wow, okay, we think she's pretty awesome, but she's been through some really tough stuff too, and she yeah. keeps coming back. And so that's what lights me up, and it's what keeps me going is, is seeing young people and just their brilliance and talent reminds me that there's still hope for the world, that, man, if we could just help each one of them step into the fullness and, and their full brilliance and beauty, the world will become a, a really great place. And so I feel really blessed to be able to spend so much time around young people to get to witness their brilliance and, and then to be a reflection back to them of their brilliance when sometimes they don't remember they are. Beautiful. To date, what would you say is your biggest high or your greatest win? Wow. I don't know. You know, students ask me that all the time. And obviously I've gotten a lot of awards and those are awesome. But I will tell you this last weekend, watching my son walk across the stage at the University of Southern California to earn the highest degree that you can get in video game design wow. in the world. It's literally the best program in the world to watch him walk across the stage while sitting next to my adopted daughter who has been through so much tragedy. She lost her mother at nine. Her dad was in prison for 27 years, but for us to sit there together and celebrate her brother. And then as I'm flying home on the plane, to get the video of my oldest son proposing to his girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, there's no higher high than that. That is I, There's beautiful. just no high. So it's not an accomplishment. It's yeah. watching my family thrive is the best thing. Beautiful. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? <laughs> I know what my superpower is. I, it's so funny because <laughs> I was taking a group of young people to a hotel in Portland, Oregon once. And I don't know why I was behind them all, but they'd all checked into their rooms and I was the only one at the desk. And the desk manager out of the blue says, so if you could have any superpower, what would it be? <laughs> and I said, oh, I already have a superpower. And he looked at me, his eyes got really big. He said, do you have a superpower? I said, oh yeah, I have a superpower. <laughs> and he was so confused. He came out from behind the desk to stand in front of me. And I said, I have the superpower of being able to see beauty and brilliance in young people. Wow. And the tears that rolled out of his eyes. And I said, you know what? I've taught in some of the most difficult places in the United States. I've taught in spaces where kids didn't have running water or electricity. But you give me five minutes with a child and I will find something they're awesome at. That is definitely a superpower. <laughs> I was able to do that because my parents did that for me and my teachers. I got to go to a really amazing school where that was the norm. My teachers constantly reminded me and pointed out and pushed me to find my own brilliance and I'm able to now pass that on to young people. And you know, that is honestly, I think in my opinion, that is 
our responsibility as parents to our children to instill those values in our kids from a very young age. Because if we continue to do that, if we start out their lives from a young age doing that, instilling those values, they will grow up not knowing any different. They will just, it will be ingrained in them, in their DNA that they won't know to think any different. They'll just know I'm awesome and I can do anything I set my mind to. And that is our responsibility as parents to do that for them. Yep. I agree. I agree. And I get to do that for other people's children too. And that is the greatest gift in the world. Absolutely. So speaking of success, Erin, how do you define the word success? What does that word mean to you? I actually don't use the word success anymore. I talk about thriving Okay. um, because I think success often is about how much money you make or how many followers you have or a job title. So I talk about wanting people to thrive and that means to be able to live lives that are fulfilling and that, that matter in the world. And you could do that while making $20,000 a year, or you could do that while making $100,000 a year, but you could do that while having no followers on Facebook. And you could do that having a lot of followers on Facebook. <laughs> but I talk a lot about flourishing and thriving as opposed to success, because I think success is very transactional yeah. and it's very superficial. And I, I really want to live a life where I'm physically healthy, mentally healthy, and doing work that makes the world better. Love it. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning it? And what was your life like after you learned it? I think, you know, as an athlete, I tell people one of the greatest gifts in my world is having been able to play sports my entire life at a, at a pretty high level. But I learned early on that loss is part of life. As an athlete, I don't care how great you are. Every athlete has lost at some point. And I think the ability to lose and get back up is an incredible strength. And so, you know, as I look at how that has helped me move through the world, I tried out for two women's professional teams. So the WNBA, I tried out for the Seattle Storm and the Portland Fire at 28 years old. I had three little children. I was the oldest woman with the most children when I tried out and I didn't get chosen to play for them. And I knew at tryouts, I'm old and I'm not tall enough for my position. I knew that early, but I said, you know what? I don't ever want to look back and wish I had. I want to be able to say I at least tried. And what's awesome is because I tried out, I got seen by a coach who had played on the Olympic team for the United States as a young woman. She was now in her 80s, but she invited me to represent the United States as the captain player of the American team against the Mexican Olympic team. Wow. So when I was 30 years old, I got to play in Mexico City against the Olympic team from Mexico. And, but that was all because I failed at the WNBA tryout. Well, I also ran for office. I ran for statewide office. I failed at that. I lost by one point, but because I tried, it opened the door for all these really beautiful other things. And now I have a book and, and all of that, all because I tried and failed. And so I think learning how to fail and get back up is probably the most important lesson I learned as a child. Love it. Okay. So I want to ask then with with what we've been talking about with the school system and education system where they don't fail the children and when they do, when they do end up failing in life, it's, it's going to be a disaster. So how do we navigate that and how do we change that so that, I mean, think about it when I coached my, my girls playing soccer and every kid on the team got a trophy, we didn't win yeah. anything but like this has yeah. got this added to, this has got to stop because again, yeah. you're setting, not your real kids, life. no, not you're, real you're life. setting your kids up no. for failure. So how do we no. change this narrative and what can we do? Like it dry, this of all things drives me up a wall because you are only well, setting yeah. these kids up. Yeah, but I think we, and it's particularly this last generation that we have done that too. I think, yeah. you know, in my generation, you know, I'll be 51 in a couple of weeks. We did not get awards. All no. of us. You had to earn it. You yes. had to earn it. And then I don't know what happened to this generation <laughs> after us, but, you know, things definitely changed. And, and we tried to be really soft. I think because our parents were hard. Yeah. The response to it was, we're going to be too gentle. And I think we need to get back to a place that's moderation. I also think, again, going back to something I said before, we've got to lead by example. I don't think leaders are allowed to fail either. Yeah. I think leaders protect themselves. And when a mistake is made, they, they re communicate it. So it doesn't look quite like a mistake instead of just saying publicly, man, I messed up here. Yeah. And so I don't think we allow for anyone to make mistakes right now. And I think it's hurting all of us. 
Yeah, and so sure. I think, you know, it's something that I talk about as a leader all the time is that, you know, part of being a leader is owning when I mess up and owning that I will mess up, owning that I'm human and that I'm not always a winner, that I, I am going to lose sometimes. And so I think we as the adult and particular leaders have to be vulnerable and transparent and have to own the places that we are flawed. And when we make mistakes, we have to be willing to own that. And because how can we not allow children to fail if we are also not allowing our adults to fail? So it goes True. back again to we as the adults have to change our behavior. Yeah. And Fail. failure is part of life. Yes. Failure and challenge are part of life. And I, Absolutely. you know, I look at a lot of our really quote unquote smart kids are really accomplished kids and they are stressed out because they yeah. don't feel like they can fail. And I'm watching them take their lives and, and try to yeah. take their lives. And just the whole dynamic of, you know, everyone's got to be winning all the time is not a healthy dynamic for anyone. It's killing no. us all. It's not realistic at all. No. Fail, fail nope. forward. It's okay to fail. That's how we learn. Yep. That's the best lesson you can learn. Absolutely. So speaking, Absolutely. Of, speaking of which then, what would you say is one of your biggest failures and what did you learn from it? I mean, my biggest public failure was obviously losing the state right. superintendent race. And, I, you know, I'll push into this one. So one of the reasons I lost is because of I had to respond to a questionnaire about sexual health. And I did not respond well around issues supporting LGBTQIA youth, in particular trans students. I didn't respond well in that my questionnaire and got called out by some people. And instead of running away from it and saying, just cowering in a corner, yeah. I pushed in. I went and met with the head of our trans activist group here in Seattle, sat and had lunch with her, went to a, a whole workshop, like paid to go to a conference while I'm running for office. Because I said, you know what? My goal is always to learn how to serve every student well. Yeah. But I, I knew that I had had gay students. I had lesbian students. I'd never had a trans student in my class. And I knew I didn't know that well. Well, it that story got totally blown up on and it it lost me the election just that wow. story in itself and i could have been really bitter but i intentionally stayed in the game and stayed learning about how to support our trans and lgbtqia youth and what is so fabulous now is that i now have two trans students in my class i have a non-binary student in my class i have a student who identifies as queer in my class i get called into schools now when there's been an altercation involving a students who identify as LGBTQIA. And so even though I lost my election for how I responded on that questionnaire, instead of running from it, I pushed in to learn more and how to better serve students. And now I get to serve those students in ways that I may not have had I won the election even. Yeah, it served you much better reacting yep. the way that you did. Somehow I can't see you cowering back from, from <laughs> challenges, Aaron. I just don't see it. It's not who you are. No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> so for generations listening to this years from now, is there any wisdom you'd want to pass on to them? What would you want them to know? You are worthy because you are. Beautiful. You are worthy because you are. Who in your life yeah. has had the biggest impact on you and why? My parents, my parents. Yeah. You know, my parents, it doesn't make any sense to me that they found each other because they grew up in very conservative Christian homes and very Republican families. And they are somehow Democrats, the two of them. I don't know how they found each other in their little <laughs> remote towns, but they gave up everything to invest in me. You know, they moved across an ocean to another country to give me a better life and have continued to invest in me even into my fifties. And they are my biggest champions today. They're my biggest advocates today. They would give up everything in a heartbeat to serve me even today after all this time as a grown woman, my dad drove, I think 20,000 miles for my campaign. Wow. He insisted on in driving me. Yeah. So, you know, my parents are just amazing humans. They're the most humble people you'll meet. So they are, if you saw them in a room, you'd have no idea they were my parents. <laughs> you know what? I have they to interrupt like... for one sec. I, I'm <laughs> yeah. watching your speech at the school when you said, don't look around for my parents. Don't look around for parents that look like <laughs> me because you will never find my parents in yeah. this room. Yeah. <laughs> I uh -huh. laughed my head off when you said yeah. that. I mom, loved is, <laughs> mom is a five foot two blonde woman. Dad is six, three 
pale, so pale he's clear. I tell people he's he's not white, he's clear. You can see his blood vessels through his skin. But they are my really my favorite people in the world. And my husband is also a, a huge champion for me. So we're we're great friends. But I would say my parents, if I had to pick yeah. a set of people, my mom and dad. My, yeah, my mom would just drop anything and has most of her life drops everything to serve me. Beautiful. Aaron, what does the word empowerment mean to you? Means to create a table where someone else can display their power. I think we all have power. We all already have it innate in us, but I feel like my job as as a leader is to open doors for other people to be able to use their power in in ways maybe they don't have access in ways that I do. And so it's it's opening the door, it's laying the table, it's creating another, bringing another chair to the table to create space for someone else to be their most powerful self. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next okay. grouping of questions, just be two, three, four word answer type thing. Okay. Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? Inspire. What's the first thing you think when I say the word future? Hope. What is one of your favorite words? Courage. Would you rather have more time or more money? Time. If you're writing your autobiography, what would the title be? <laughs> I just wrote it. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. It. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> if you could teach the world one thing, what would that thing be? Effective communication. What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money? <sighs> wow. One thing that I want. It's not even for me. I want every person in the world to feel worthy. That concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What is an unexpected blessing or occurrence in your life that you're grateful for? Wow, this COVID thing has been, you know, I lost everything that I do. So on March 13th, all the schools in our state closed and all my contracts were with schools. So I literally lost every job that I had. Every source of income in 24 hours was gone. And my husband turned to me on March 13th, the evening of March 13th and said, honey, you've been doing for a long time. I just want to invite you to be for a little while. That's powerful. And that incredibly powerful. That's love. Like that's somebody who really loves you. And man, that blew open opportunity for me in ways that I could not have imagined. I I am doing things today that I couldn't have imagined two years ago because my husband said, just be, just be for a little while. (laughs) Those two words, just be. Mm -hmm. Huge, huge words. Yep. Erin, if you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? (sighs) Wow. Probably Michelle Obama. I have so much respect for her and as another Black woman who's accomplished, I just know that she's walked through incredible challenge and still continues to smile and be regal. And yeah, I would love to meet her and have a conversation with her someday. What is your why? My why, I've got a couple whys, but okay. my big why is to create education spaces where all students can thrive. But I want to create a, a world where all people can thrive. That's what gets me up every day. When I hone in, my sweet spot is really in education spaces, how do I help educators do that? But my big, big why, 30,000 foot is, is how do I, with all that I do, create spaces where people can thrive and flourish? Love it. If you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I didn't ask you? Oof. You asked a lot of questions. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know if there's anything you have missed. You've asked a lot of deep questions. All right. We'll, we'll leave it at that then. If you could go back, Erin, and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? You are enough. <laughs> Beautifully said. Lastly, Erin, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech to the world, your world, your corner Oh my of the gosh, world, there your... is a bald eagle flying right over me right now. <laughs> the bald eagle is my favorite bird on the planet, and it is flying right over me right now, right outside the window at the hotel. Amazing. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> I feel like that's a sign. I feel yeah, like that's a sign right for now. For sure. For sure. Oh my gosh. Okay. Sorry. Go back to the question. If, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, your corner of the world, your people, your tribe, yeah. what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What would you say or what words of wisdom would you impart? So I'm going to share what I just shared with a group of students yesterday who asked me to do a 30 second. So I had done a full hour long assembly for them. And then they wanted to have a 30 second capturing of my wisdom for their TV studios today. So here's what I told them. 
said, if I could leave you with any thoughts after the assembly I just did, I'm going to encourage you to be grateful for everything that you have, the big things and the little things, because gratitude actually changes our brain chemistry. It helps us show up in the world in positive ways. And so I would encourage you to be grateful. Even when things are hard, find the little things to be grateful for. I would encourage you to be brave, be courageous, be willing to try hard things and fail and get back up and try again. And finally, I would encourage you to pause. I would encourage you to take care of yourself because you cannot care for others if you don't first love and care for yourself. Love yourself well, because as we love ourselves well, we are able to love those around us well. Powerful. That is incredible. And what a way to end the conversation. Erin, you are an incredibly beautiful, inspiring woman, human, and soul. I so appreciate you taking the time to be here today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with all of my heart. I am so inspired by you. And this conversation has just been epic. And I've enjoyed every minute of it. So thank you very much for making the time and taking the time to be here with me today and share. And I am honored to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And this, these were the best questions of any interview I think I've ever done. So wow. kudos on the question. I am honored <laughs> and flattered by that. And I know you've spoken with and done a lot of interviews. Yes, so thank I you have. for that. I appreciate that. That means more than you know to me. So thank you for that. Yay. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh. I am the host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Erin Jones. She is an independent education and systems consultant, a public speaker, and a three times TEDx speaker. Erin, thank you so much. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca, follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast, and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.